Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 9, being recorded on January 13th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Welcome back from CES. I I guess you survived, and we didn't have to go bail you out of Sin City or anything. Uh, You did not, although I have several upcoming events, including one with you in Las Vegas, so I won't rule out that you will ever have to do that. I'll keep keep some cash on hand, just in case. I appreciate it. um, Tell me all the exciting stuff you saw at CES. Yeah, so I think there's you know, both some interesting personal stuff and that are probably more professionally relevant to us. But, you know, when you look at the big five trends overall at CES, TVs always get bigger and better every year. And this was the year that, like, all the consumer-grade TVs became 4K TVs, and there's a lot of content for the uh, in 4K for the TVs. So uh, in the TV part of the show, it definitely was the year 4K, the car industry is really taking off at CES. I think like 12 auto manufacturers were at this year's show and a ton of car tech connected car stuff uh, from all the major major manufacturers and of course some some cool uh, autonomous car stuff. I know we talked a little bit about the Faraday concept in our last episode, but the other big trends at the show, uh, Internet of Things keeps getting bigger, and you know there's now a huge section of the show dedicated to specifically to Internet of Things for fitness and Internet of Things for connected home. This definitely felt like the first year that that connected home could potentially go mainstream. And then the two topics that I know you would have totally geeked out on, uh, there was just a ton of augmented reality and virtual reality and uh, like more drones than you could shake a stick at. Cool. Were they actually letting them fly the drones around the Las Vegas Convention Center? Kind of. They've totally figured out how to exhibit drones at CES. So there there are a wide variety of these cages that they hang from the ceiling, uh, some of them quite large. And mm-hmm. so like in the parrot booth, there's a huge cage and they do these um, synchronized, it's almost like a dance number with like music in the uh, the drones like doing autonomous flight to the music and um, there's some pretty big spaces. There was even one cage that had like laser tag built into the drones and they literally had drone battles in the cage, which was pretty fun. Well, that sounds fun. Yes. I did not get to uh, partake in a battle, but I enjoyed watching a few. One thing I think surprised me is I saw a lot of um, cool new features and announcements around Amazon Echo. Uh, and that's funny because a lot of people have poo-pooed Amazon's hardware ambitions, especially after the fire. And I remember when Echo came out, and for those of you that don't know, it's that that kind of vertical black um, speaker. It's like a Bluetooth speaker, but it has natural language with Alexa as kind of their Siri. Um, and I'm seeing more and more momentum around home automation, and I think there was even some connected car stuff. What Did you see anything related to that? I did. A ton of people have integrated uh, Echo into their product. So I think Amazon has started to open up APIs, and they clearly are participating with third parties. And so a bunch of booths were announcing their new Echo-enabled capabilities. And to me, like one of the best examples was Ford. And Ford had fully integrated the Echo into 
their dashboard. So any of the commands that you would traditionally give to a, an Echo at home, you could give to your car, and your car would relay them to a, a an Echo service in the cloud um, and execute them. So if you have uh, lights integrated to your system at home or thermostats or garage door openers or if then, then this, then that, which I can never say right, <laughs> any of those things that you have integrated to your Echo at home, you could now launch from your car and vice versa. They had added a bunch of car verbs to Echo. So you could now give Echo from your home commands like how much gas do I have? Where's the car parked? Start the car to preheat it. You know, all, all of those kinds of things. And it, it was pretty elegant and smooth. By accident, it enables some interesting things like when you're driving, you can, you know, be adding things to your Amazon wish list. You can do some, some interesting searches about, you know, uh, uh, products and stores and things like that. So it, it both seemed pretty powerful. Echo is also pretty good at media. You know, certainly if you, if you subscribe to the Amazon, uh, ecosystem, uh, pun not really <laughs> intended. <laughs> And, you know, are using Amazon Prime video content or, or storing your music on there and those things. Uh, that then gives you access to all that content in your, in your car, which is pretty cool. But to me, even just taking one step back, better, uh, more seamless user interfaces were a huge trend at CES and the, and natural language was, was a big one. A lot of the TV remotes, uh, Apple, TiVo, um, sling, you know, all, all now responding to, uh, natural language stuff really elegantly. And that seems like one of the reasons that Amazon's getting integrated into a bunch of these products is it may be one of the, the better natural language user interfaces that you can access via an API. Although I, I've read recently that Microsoft is opening up uh, APIs for Cortona. Cortona. Yes. That felt like a big trend. Also a ton more like uh, gesture recognition. Intel is showing a lot of their, uh, using their 3D cameras in all sorts of interesting ways uh, as a user interface. Hmm. Cool. Any uh, retail um, examples there at CS? Yeah. So there are a few things. There literally is an e-commerce section of the show this year, and it was sponsored by MasterCard and specifically their mobile wallet, MasterPass. And so they they had a booth uh, with some interesting use cases. They were showing MasterPass enabled commercial laundry mats, so you could pay to do your laundry without finding coins. But you could also do interesting things like reserve a washing machine while you were still at home to make sure that there was one available when you got there. They they're showing they they have a facial recognition as a second authentication factor. I'm I'm not super confident that that's how people want to authenticate themselves, but that was kind of interesting. While you're taking a selfie, you can authenticate. Exactly. It's, it's kind of a two-for-one. Yeah. The people are sort of jokingly calling it selfie commerce. <laughs> but they do have an interesting way to extend their mobile wallet. They they have a, an ability to take any device with an NFC chip in it and uh, make that a token for uh, mobile payments. And so, you know, it turns out there are more and more devices that we own or carry anyway that might have an NFC chip in them. Obviously, a lot of phones, but some uh, car key fobs have NFC chips in them. There's some hideously ugly, quote unquote, smart rings that have NFC chips in them. Uh, Samsung was showing a bunch of apparel with NFC chips in them. So there's an NFC chip in the sleeve of of a Samsung business suit and in, in some athletic wear. And uh, using this this administrative console for MasterPass, you could give any of those devices permission to be payment vehicles. So imagine you're wearing the Samsung smart suit, 
uh, you could permission that sleeve to pay for things. And if you go anywhere that accepts NFC payments, you swipe your sleeve and uh, it it uh, gives a token from from uh, MasterPass to pay for it. That seems almost a little too flexible. I'd be, you know, gesticulating and paying for stuff by accident. Yeah, I think there's both that issue and, you know, people worry about losing some of those devices and then having someone else run amok with it, but, um, which I think is a real risk that the way they mitigate that is, you know, this is a whole administrative console where you can quickly turn off those individual devices without turning off your, your whole account. Um, but so they, they had some interesting use cases. They had a smart gas pump, um, which, Potentially means, you know, faster transactions at the gas station. In this section that they sponsored, Alibaba had a booth, and their booth was mostly about uh, helping uh, U.S. companies import Chinese goods. Mm -hmm. This particular show, uh, Digital River had a small booth and a few other, like, obscure um, e-commerce anti-fraud companies and a a few things like that. It it didn't seem like e-commerce was a a huge hit as a dedicated section at CES. But, you know, there's e-commerce scattered throughout CES. There are a lot of the Internet of Things devices that, you know, now enable payments. I think we talked last week about the smart refrigerator. Um, the Amazon has a booth at CES, but it's mainly about uh, signing up uh, B2B companies on their marketplace. Um, so so you could definitely find some some commerce if you looked. To me, the most interesting things were sort of some of the retail applications for the consumer technology. So Panasonic had some cool stuff. Uh, they had a technology that they call um, visible light data transmission, I think, which is a super elegant name. <laughs> but the notion is that they can um, oscillate a visible light at a speed that that the human eye can't see, but but that transmits data to the cam- to the camera in a smartphone. Um, and so what that lets them do, the, the use case they had was like a subway station. That's like a four-sided subway station uh, terminal, and each side is giving you a map of a subway going in a different direction. And uh, you, you pop open the subway app and just aim the camera at the, the backlit sign, and the sign sends a URL to your phone that pops up the the schedule for that particular uh, subway. And so if you, you know, you point the camera at any of the signs and you get that sign's data, and frankly, it was a way faster, way easier version of what we might have done last year with like a QR code. Yeah, it's like QR codes without all the hassle. Yeah, it's like QR codes on steroids, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you could definitely see that having an application in retail. They had some interesting surface mapping technology for projectors. So a few retailers are already experimenting with this, but you can kind of uh, wrap a three-dimensional wall with video using some of these projectors and do some interesting things. And then you combine that with gesture recognition. And so you could, for example, turn a wall of athletic shoes into a digital display that had you know product information projected next to the shoes. And you could know when someone picked up the shoe and changed the content and do stuff like that. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, so some cool underlying technologies. We'll see if, if retailers really adopt them. If that's the case, what we'll probably see is see them again next week at NRF. Yeah, yeah. The, did you see, uh, speaking about drones, um, it was interesting because Google uh, did a little bit of, bit of drone trash talk. They were kind of out, uh, you know, 
in an ungoogly kind of way talking about how far their drone program has gone and they're projecting package delivery within a couple of years in the United States. They, they said, and um, looks like it's kind of them and Amazon pushing the FAA. Uh, And then I also saw that they are doubling down. They've always had Google cardboard, which is their uh, AR VR effort. Um, And they have the camera thing as well. Uh, but now they've announced they're actually going to have a whole division within Alphabet focused uh, a lot more seriously on virtual reality. So I thought those were two interesting kind of CES-ish, uh, but I guess they were separate from CES, but interesting to see Google getting a little more serious about b- both of those technologies as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if nothing else, like they, they certainly validate both of those product categories when you see them uh, making much more significant investments in resources and people in those those two techs. It, to your point, it was interesting. You know, they had a lot of meeting space at CES, and I'm sure they were talking with folks privately, but they didn't have a actual booth and didn't. You know, they they actually waited till after CES to make some of those announcements. Hmm. Did you see the? Um, uh, otherwise, this week there was the whole bit of a controversy around L2. Did you see that? I did. I, I followed that. They uh, had an, an event. They were uh, live tweeting the event, and the hashtag for the event was called uh, "Rest in Peace Pure Play." I think the premise, and this is not a new position for L2 to take, I think they've been there for a while, is that pure play is not a sustainable model and that pure play e-commerce sites are not going to be successful uh, and that that most of the ones that we like to name are all moving to become omni-channel retailers and they use, of course, Warby Parker and Bonobos as big examples of companies that started out pure play and have shifted to omni-channel. And uh, their, their feeling is... That shipping costs are just too high for pure, for pure play to be profitable and that all these companies are going to need stores as points of distribution in order to make the math work. Do you agree with that? I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't think pure play is an easy path to success. I mean, I think all forms of retail are hard, frankly. You know, for sure, I think there's some unique challenges around being a pure play retailer. You know, I work predominantly with omni-channel clients, and it is absolutely true that those brick-and-mortar stores are great advertising vehicles that help build brand and drive traffic to the e-commerce sites. And so I certainly think there are some challenges in being a pure play retailer, but that being said... You know, I, I think there already are successful examples of pure play retailers. I think, of, you know, folks like Revolve Clothing or Newegg or eBags. And, you know, certainly as soon as you leave the U.S. and you look at like Alibaba or JD and some of those, I, I think I think it's hard to say that there are going to be no successful pure play retailers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The um, one thing we had talked about a little bit because uh, I guess it was was it last episode or maybe the one before. Um, There's some rumors out about flash sales, and since then those have been confirmed. Um, so first, I guess it is now confirmed that Gilt has been sold. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't think that was a huge surprise to anyone. I mean, I, that follows the same trend as a lot of their competitors like Outlook and Zulily. But, uh, I, you know, I think the marquee thing there was the valuation that, right? Like they were at one point had a billion dollar valuation and were a unicorn. And then, you know, they had to do a down round. And ultimately, uh, Hudson Bay Company paid less for them than the total amount that they raised. And so, you know, I think if you were an early investor in Gilt, you probably still did okay. I think if you were uh, one of the founders of Gilt, that you could certainly consider this exit a win. But if you were a late investor, 
you you probably didn't do well. And if you were an employee that stuck it out there for a long time in the hopes of, of your equity being worth something, you probably got totally screwed. Yeah, usually works the other way. Late investors do better than early investors. So probably uh, because they have this preference stack that they get their money back first. Exactly, yeah. I don't, I mean, who knows? Like maybe there was a ratchet clause or something that they didn't uh, didn't disclose, but I haven't, haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. And then um, there's a couple other ones in the news, uh, and I don't know what happened. So one King's Lane, I think they were saying they were trying to raise money, but it was not going well, and the valuation was also cut. Um, any other... Uh, a, did you hear that? And B, any other flash sale news? Yeah, so I think uh, Jason Delray broke that news that One One Kings Lane might be struggling financially. And then I think this week we heard that Beezer, which depending on how you count, you may or may not consider a flash sale, that they uh, were coming close to running out of money and were finding it hard to raise more funds. And for folks that might not be familiar with Beezer, Beezer is one of the founders of Fab.com. And so, you know, Fab was maybe the original and best example of a fast-running pure play that, you know, arguably had a billion-dollar valuation at one point. And uh, I think they got liquidated a couple times, but if you roll them all up, like the core company probably ultimately sold for less than $10 bucks. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a bad outcome. Exactly. It's particularly bad for me because the the founder uh, shares my same name, so I, I take a lot of the blame for for that that crash. <laughs> Do you actually have people reach out to you? or All the time. <laughs> People confuse us all the time. When the site was going well, it was funny because they had a lot of off-color product descriptions on the site. And so I used to get emails from angry mothers that didn't like some of the salty language on the, on the pro, on the site. And now, you know, I get blamed for being a, a washed up uh, e-commerce executive that crashed and burned a company and now has to uh, make my living as a consultant, <laughs> which is, of course, half true. <laughs> you won't say which half. Exactly. <laughs> Cool. So these flash sales kind of hitting this kids, does this kind of uh, support the L2 theme? It does. Scott Galloway, the founder of L2, I think he's talked about this for a while, and I think he got it right. When these flash sales started, there was a real opportunity and need in the market for them, that there was a glut of product. We were entering a recession. Uh, the luxury companies in particular had a bunch of distressed inventory and no way to clean it. And the flash sales you know, really had an opportunity to get some good appealing inventory and do some interesting things with it. Um, but that wasn't a sustainable model. It wasn't good in the long run for the luxury uh, guys to be liquidating their their product at lower prices in their home market, um, and you know. So ultimately, they found better ways to to clean up that inventory. The you know the big retailers, Nordstrom uh, with Nordstrom Rack and and uh, Saks with Saks, uh, Off Fifth, and you know the TJ Maxx's of the world. The market just got much more efficient at liquidating all that inventory, and suddenly the flash sales didn't have this good cheap supply of products and you know as their their inventory got less appealing you know it became really hard for them to be sticky and you know ultimately they they just weren't earning any repeat customers and e-commerce is is very expensive when you only sell one thing to a customer Cool. Well, it wouldn't be a show without me uh, sharing some Amazon news. So this week uh, was pretty interesting. Uh, on Monday, it came out that Amazon was buying a French delivery company. And this is a courier, kind of like a FedEx UPS, but much smaller, obviously, but in France. Um, so, so that's pretty interesting. So they're, you know, uh, one of my 2016 predictions was that they will get a lot more serious about this. And, and this was an interesting first pass. Um, 
they also announced uh, a partnership with the University of Pennsylvania or UPenn, where they're going to be running an Amazon pickup and drop off center within the university mail room. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And um, in that press release, what came out was uh, they said uh, around half of the packages delivered to to that whole facility all, that all the students go to were Amazon uh, boxes. So pretty amazing kind of stat there. And what I think was kind of lost in some of the press was, yes, this is this is uh, going to be a convenience for the students to be able to kind of pick up their packages but also drop off returns. But now you have an aggregation point there, and another aggregation point on the other side is the fulfillment centers. So instead of many UPS trucks bringing the packages and then uh, you know UPenn delivering them, now I think it'll be that much easier for Amazon to substitute in an Amazon truck. So um, you know you're starting to see these little collection you know, uh, points, density points where Amazon can go in there, take that over, and and take over that part of the delivery tree. So I think. Those were two interesting kind of movements from Amazon down this logistics path. Did uh, what did you think about those? And did you see any other interesting Amazon news this week? Yeah, so I mean, the college thing makes total sense. It's almost like they just added a will call window to a sortation center, and they essentially, to your point, have have everything they need. And you know, as they start peeling off business from from UPS and taking it direct, those are going to be like you know easy easy points to make profitable. It's funny because I think uh, Sucharita Mulpuro had pointed out some to me earlier that there were a bunch of college campuses that are complaining that their their shipping and receiving uh, facilities are now broken in the e-commerce era that they they can't keep up with the package volume. So Amazon has this great business interest in moving into those campuses, but it sounds like a lot of campuses are going to need Amazon or some other solution because they their their legacy facilities just weren't designed to receive the. They they just literally don't have physical space for all the packages that students are getting. Yeah, the the loser on this is I don't know who runs the bookstore there, but that was probably a depressing announcement for them. Yeah, and especially <laughs> like uh, I think I also read in that same announcement that there's going to be some pretty fast delivery, right? Like that they're same delivery on orders uh, uh, before noon and next day delivery on orders up to 10 p.m. And so, I mean, there's even immediate gratification on a lot of that. Yeah, it's almost kind of like some kind of a hybrid Amazon Prime Now for students kind of a thing. Exactly. I, uh, so I've been a longtime student of Amazon's naming convention, and I believe that's going to be Amazon College Prime Now. Mm, okay. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> oh, the other Amazon news I noticed this week is I, I came across, I think it might have been out for a little while, but I just came across uh, an Ohio State study on the impact of sales tax on Amazon. And I, I found it a little interesting uh, because I remember when Amazon first started collecting tax, um, there were a bunch of early studies that indicated that it really wasn't having a derogatory impact on their sales or their business. And to be honest, I just filed that fact away and had sort of assumed that Amazon was starting to collect tax in all these states where it now had Nexus as it opened fulfillment centers and that they weren't having any impact from collecting that sales tax. But this Ohio State study seems to say that they absolutely are being impacted by collecting sales tax. And so I'll put the link to the study in in the show notes. But the key findings in the study are that in states where Amazon started collecting tax, they're selling 8.3% less merchandise, which is 
pretty close to the average state tax rate. So, you know, that tells you that consumers are spending about the same amount amount with or without tax and that, you know, Amazon's just getting less of that revenue when they have to charge tax. That the study also showed that on big ticket items, items over 250 bucks, the spending got hurt even more, which kind of makes sense when you start, you know, spending hundreds of dollars, you, the tax starts feeling more meaningful. And so they found that uh, Amazon was selling 11.4% less when on of items that are over 250 bucks. But the the most interesting thing to me was trying to figure out what the impact of Amazon collecting tax has on other e-commerce sites and on brick and mortar retailers. Cause you know, when all of these e-commerce tax issues were being kind of debated in public, it was always that that was the unfair advantage that Amazon had and that brick and mortar retailers were getting screwed. And what the Ohio State study saw is that when Amazon started collecting tax, it was beneficial to other e-commerce sites in that state in that same category. So they looked specifically at consumer electronics and they saw new egg sales go up by 11.3% when Amazon started collecting tax. Presumably new egg wasn't collecting tax in there and so again that's mm. that's not shocking, right? Like that's exactly yeah. what you, what you might expect is that the the bargain hunter shifted to a site that didn't collect tax. But what was mildly interesting to me was they showed Best Buy sales going up 7.1% in states where Amazon started collecting tax. And that, that to me is a little interesting that suddenly it was more appealing to go to a store, which is yeah. maybe one piece of potential good news for omnichannel retailers. Yeah. The, uh, it's interesting. I, I definitely want to read that. So um, we did a little study around uh, when they launched in California when Amazon started collecting tax. And what we did is we indexed the transactions in California versus the rest of the, the country on a same-store sales kind of basis. And what we saw in our data was a run-up. You know, Amazon overperformed running up to the tax event. Um, and then it underperformed, but it only lasted, if I recall, about 30 days. And then they kind of went back to the norm. Um, so the sales were kind of comparable year over year to those in states that Amazon doesn't collect tax in. So uh, definitely interesting to see. I think our data was a little bit different than that. And, yeah. You know, there's definitely a convenience factor in there. And I, I think, you know, Amazon has kind of done some calculus on the, the cost and, and the the convenience and the prime factor of the lock-in of that. And uh, it hasn't slowed their growth. So they're, I think, I think 60% of the U S population now um, has tax collected. And um, so, you know, definitely crossed the midpoint. So it hasn't slowed their growth down. So um, yeah, I haven't seen, seen it in the data there. Yeah, no, if there is a, a tax penalty for Amazon, they certainly have overcome it in growth, right? Yeah. It, it would be interesting. I normally am not a big fan of surveys, but a fascinating survey for me would be to survey a big chunk of Amazon customers and, and ask if they are paying tax or not. Um, and my, my theory is there, there are a bunch of Amazon convenience shoppers that don't actually know that they're now paying tax. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> uh, but it is with all these studies, you know, we've talked about it before. It's, it's important to understand where the data is coming from and what the methodology is, right? Cause obviously you guys have a super interesting data set, but it's probably fair to assume that it's going to skew towards categories that are, uh, have a lot of 3P activity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and, uh, I think the Ohio State data was like 500,000 users. But they were 500,000 uh, users that were using like a, a mobile shopping app to track their their purchases. Um, and, you know, so to me, the first thing I hear when I hear that kind of stuff is, oh, this is a 
a self-selected segment of of users that are uh, a lot more digitally aware and engaged than the you know probably probably typical consumer. Yeah, most Amazon shoppers don't use a, another app to track their shopping. They just use the Amazon app. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. One thing we haven't talked about a while, even though it's late in 2016 here on uh, January 13th, is the holiday wrap-up. Uh, so Comscore was out with their wrap-up, and it was pretty interesting. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it or not. I did uh, get an overview, but it sounded like they felt like they were pretty close to their original project. Do I have it right? Yeah, they were at 14%, and they said that uh, the holiday came in uh, just below that. They didn't They didn't kind of put a number out. And I think they're waiting on their mobile data. It takes quite a while. Um, but so, you know, I think uh, our data, we put out our same store sales, and we came in at about 13.5%. So a little bit below kind of the 14 15% that Comscore was saying. Uh, the Comscore data, one thing that was interesting, they said the, that desktop really underperformed. They were expecting kind of 8 to 10% growth, and it came in at 6 uh, and then mobile, I think they're expecting 45 to 50% growth and it grew, uh, at, uh, 60 to 65%. So it made up some of the slowness from desktop, but, uh, not enough to kind of get to the, the overall. So, um, then they also highlighted, um, a lot of big wins by Omnichannel. Uh, particularly they called out Target and Walmart around, uh, Black Friday, Thanksgiving and those kinds of promotions saying that they had a very strong, uh, showing at least in their data online from, from those offline promotions. That certainly jibes. Like when we've looked at retailers starting to report their holiday sales, the big boxes, Target and, and Walmart, uh, certainly did well versus some of the like department stores and and some of the other retail categories. Yeah. So, uh, big event coming up next week. Are you excited to go to the the big show, the NRF big show? I am. I'm all geared up. I was just going to say, if you're not doing anything, we should both go. Uh, let's do it. Let's. Uh, we should even like shoot the show from there. Hey, that'll be perfect. We'll do it light. We'll do it uh, right on the show floor to get that the vibe and the energy of of the the big show. I, I, <laughs> I think that'd be great. Although we may need a better audio engineer than the one we're using now. <laughs> He's fired. Exactly. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to point out to folks is I will be leading a talk Sunday at 3 p.m. Uh, if you're not watching NFL games, feel free to stop by. Uh, and we're going to uh, – it's a panel, and we have GameStop, Neiman Marcus, Sofell, and TPN Retail. And we're going to talk about this trend that's uh, really caught on fire here with retailers, which is opening um, innovation labs kind of as a, a way to uh, have a area within the company where people are free to – to innovate and try different things that you normally wouldn't do within the the normal corporate structure. So I'd love to see a lot of our listeners there at that. Yeah. Uh, will you be signing autographs after the session if we want? I will. Um, I'm at a booth where they're $50 and you have to go get a ticket and uh, whatnot, but you can, uh, you'll see signage for that. Cool. Can you buy the tickets online? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't believe in that. I, the, the e-commerce is just a fad. Gotcha. Uh, no, that does sound cool, though. I'm I will certainly be there, and uh, we'll be looking forward to it. It that's a hot topic. You know, what is the best way? Like, obviously, everyone wants to be more innovative and feels like they're challenged with innovation. But it feels like there's a bunch of different recipes that each are kind of in vogue at the moment. So it'll be interesting to hear if the if the the folks on the panel all agree or if there's some some uh, conflict. Hopefully. Yeah, and then uh, the other big thing I'm keeping an eye out for is uh, some results coming out. So, um, and usually 
by now these companies would have reported, but at the end of the year they get a little bit extra time from the SEC. So eBay is first out on January 27th with their results, uh, and then Google slash Alphabet is out February 1st, um, and then Amazon is out February 4th. The um, Wall Street is particularly excited about Google Alphabet because for the first time they're going to um, break out Google the search engine from the rest of Alphabet. And uh, there's a wide variety uh, of kind of guesses out there for how big is Google and how profitable is it. And I imagine that people are going to be blown away by, A, how big and profitable the Google search engine is, and then, B, by how much they're losing money over on the non-Google search engine stuff. So it's going to be kind of fascinating to see that. It's kind of – I liken it to when Amazon broke out AWS. Uh, Everyone had different theories, and most of them were wrong, and Amazon just blew away everyone's expectations. So that's going to be kind of a big news event here in the world of of e-commerce and just digital. Yeah, no, and I I imagine that those are uh, from a pure investment standpoint that those are always scary moments because there's there's these assumptions cooked into the price and then when you know the real data comes out for the first time there can be a pretty big pretty immediate uh, adjustment. That's all I had this week. How about you? That feels like a pretty good week. Obviously, I'm really excited to see many of my e-commerce uh, friends and particularly you next week in New York for NRF. So I want to thank everyone for listening, and we look forward to seeing many of you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 